0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel Podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. So we've been discussing the last several weeks since Easter, how Jesus Christ is able to transform our lives. And we've spent several weeks thinking about some generic kind of ways that Jesus changes us. And we've looked in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, a letter to some early Christians, just to challenge them and and help them about what it means to really grow in Christ and grow as the family of God, the body of Christ. And in the middle of all this discussion, he says, but Jesus can change your life. And he talks about how we need to put off the old sinful behavior and put on the good God-honoring behavior. And we do that through the renewing and renovating of our minds as we bring in God's Word into our minds and allow His Holy Spirit to sort of reconstruct our thinking and reconstruct our values and changes from the inside out. That, that We really become transformed people. Now, it's, it's great to talk about transformation in kind of a theoretical way, or in a way where it's just very generic and very broad, and and we kind of bring it out that way. But as we come to our journey, as we're walking through the book of Ephesians, we come to this section where all of a sudden the transformation begins to get very personal, and maybe even more challenging and uh, more practical because it impacts our home life, our family. We begin to see the change that God can bring about in our marriages and in our relationship with our kids and in our workplace as well. And the challenge for us is to understand that God really does care about your marriage and he wants to work in your marriage and he wants to make it stronger. Your marriage matters to him. And because it matters to him, it should matter to you and it should matter to to me as well. Now, I know, Some of us are here today and we're not married. Some of us are not married because our spouse left or we left and things fell apart. Others, our spouses were taken from us. They passed away. And it's a very sad and hard thing to think about marriage today. It's it's hard to think about marriage when you're a single person. And maybe you're interested in being married and it just hasn't come about yet. Or maybe you're perfectly content being single. Either way, this message is still important for all of us to hear about because we're talking about the family of God and a very important part, just as singles are very important and widows and widowers are very important in the family of God, so are married couples and families in the family of God as well because we're talking about the entire church and we're talking about growing together in Christ and being transformed together to become more like Jesus and make a difference in this world as well. So it's important to hear this so that we can support one another, so we can encourage one another, so we can be there for one another and really build each other up in the body of Christ as well. So I'd like to invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament and find chapter 5. This is page 978. Page 978. And I encourage you to turn there. And we're gonna start reading down in verse 21, a little bit of what we read last week. And we're gonna read verse 21 and then go down through to the end of the chapter. And this is one of the longest sections, descriptions of what married life is supposed to be like. This is God's design, God's plan for marriage. And it's also a, a, a very clear description of the roles in marriage, what people are supposed to do in their married relationships. And I expect that as we're walking through this together and exploring this together, some of us are going to get hit right between the eyes and be confronted that we need to do marriage differently than the way we are. And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is not getting rid of your spouse, as tempting as that might be, okay? Not to do that, but instead, what can I do to become a better spouse myself? How can I change? and how would God want to change me? I know that marriage has the potential of being one of the greatest sources of joy that a human being could ever experience. But I also know that it's one of the sources of the greatest heartache a human being can experience as well. So what do we do to really live life, live married life in a way that truly honors God and truly is a blessing to each other and and truly, truly leaves a lasting legacy for not just us but our kids and our grandkids and maybe even our great grandkids as well. This passage of scripture is so important that I'm actually, I'm I'm gonna kinda tell you this up front and uh, some of you might wanna, uh, I hope you'll come back next week but I understand some of you may say I don't want to because I don't wanna hear it again. But we're going to look at this passage a second time next week. This week we're focusing on why marriage matters. Why is it so important? And I think if you and I can get a handle on why it's so important, that'll help us in really making it work and making it matter. But we're also going to, next week, look at the whole concept of, well, if it matters so much, if it really is so important, how do I live it? How do I act in marriage? How do I act as a as a husband, as a wife in marriage, what do I do? And so we'll look at a little more of the how-tos next week as well. So let's, let's read God's word together today. <clears throat> Verse 21 says, "'Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. "'For the husband is the head of the wife, "'even as Christ is the head of the church, "'his body and is himself its savior. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks to God for it. Amen. So in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is challenging us to make sure that we truly are seeing marriage from God's point of view. To value it and to recognize its worth the way Jesus Christ values your marriage and sees its worth. Now, our culture tells us that marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing because it brings stability to society, you know? As the family goes, so goes the community. As the community goes, so goes the state. As the state goes, so goes the country. So if we have strong, healthy, stable marriages, then our community will be blessed for it as well. Children will be cared for. Uh, men and women, their, their needs for care and comfort and help and support will be provided for. It's a stabilizing influence in the culture. Other people, ta- our government recognizes that because. Because they give a tax deduction to people who are married. or tax breaks for that because they say there's a value in couples staying married and raising a family together. Uh, other people see marriage as something that satisfies, you know, your own appetites. And, you know, sometimes they could be so crude as I remember hearing a guy say one time, I can't wait till I get married, then I'm going to have sex all the time. And I remember being a, a sophomore in, in college and not really understanding much about romance and marriage and things like that. And I remember thinking, "Buddy, I think you've got big surprises coming to you." And uh, I think he did. And so uh, but you could see that one coming. That's a very shallow surfacey expectation for marriage. But I think if a lot of people were honest, they would say, I do expect to be protected. I do expect it to be provided for. I do expect that somebody is gonna be with me and and, and, and comfort me and I comfort them and and we're gonna share that love and, and we just have this expectation that marriage is gonna provide all these needs. I'm gonna be a better person. Other people recognize that society kind of puts pressure on us. Sometimes, in some cultures, even families put pressure. You know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you married yet? What's, you know, you need to get married. You know, she's a good go- girl. She's a good guy. Why don't you get married to them? And there's this subtle pressure from other people that you should get married. Well, God says those things are not really the issue, and they are not what's most important in marriage, and those are not reasons to get married. There are other reasons, and here are some reasons that I want to share with you from this passage today. Now when we read through Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 21, and we work our way through the the characteristics and roles of husbands and wives in marriage and the purpose of marriage and such, it's important that we don't pull these paragraphs out of their context. The context is the bigger story of scripture, the bigger discussion that's going on in this passage of scripture. And so it's easy to pull a verse out of context and prove something by it or attempt to prove something by it, but you may miss the point of what that sentence, what that little paragraph is actually saying. So you need to see the bigger picture to make sure you understand what's going on. And part of you and I getting a clear understanding of why marriage matters to Jesus Christ, we need to look at the context and we need to look at it very carefully. So I want us to zoom out a little bit and get the bigger picture. And I want you to notice what's going on before this passage about marriage. Because he's not just talking about marriage, he's talking about something bigger. In the verses before, he's just talked about how the Holy Spirit is involved in transforming our lives. And he's talked about how the days that we're living in are evil and we need to reveal the grace of God And we do that two ways. We do it by understanding the will of God, and then we're filled with the Spirit of God. And in verse 18, he's just given a command that we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to not be drunk with wine, but let the Spirit of God fill up our lives and control our lives. And that's a command. It's something that we are to continually do to allow the Spirit of God have that influence and sway over our lives. We're commanded to do that. And as a result of letting the Spirit of God be in command of our lives, and and by the way, let me clarify something. You don't have to go out looking for the Holy Spirit. You know, you won't find Him at a a store or in a church service or reading a book or going to a seminar or, or taking a drink or something like that. You won't get the Spirit that way. If you're a child of God and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is already present in your lives. He's resident in you, whether you feel Him or see Him or experience Him or not, He's already there because you're a child of God. That's what makes you a Christian, is having the Spirit of God present in your life. Now like my old professor in Bible college used to say though, I've shared this with you before, you could almost say it with me, there's a difference though between having the Holy Spirit as a resident versus making Him president. Do you get the difference? It's one thing to have him living inside of you. It's another thing for you to say, I want you to be Lord and I want you to lead my life. I want the Spirit of God to lead me. And that's what the filling of the Spirit is. To say, Holy Spirit, I yield to you. Help me love. Help me be at peace. Help me serve. Help me give. Give me self-control. And the Spirit of God will do that in your life when you yield to him. So, this passage is commanding us to be filled with the Spirit, to live our lives under the control of God's Spirit, under His heavenly, godly influence. We're to do that. And as that happens, certain characteristics are to become part of our life. We become worshipers, we become encouragers. We're people that give thanks and and recognize our place in God's world and His care for us. And at, at the end of that list, in verse 21, we learn, when we're filled with the Spirit, we learn how to voluntarily yield to one another in love, because that's what submitting means. We learn to serve one another in love. The thing that I find very interesting is that when you get into verse 22 there's no verb in that verse in the original language. It is in English because you have to put a verb in there to make it make sense. But literally in the original language, Paul wrote wives to your own husband as to the Lord. There's no verb in there, there's no submitting. And you're saying, aha, I knew there was a trick. They added a word to make us obey our husbands and submit to our husbands. And so, no, 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 this is an accurate translation. This is very clearly what the context is teaching. But the verb comes from verse 21. It's not found in verse 22. And yet what verse 22 is saying is, yes, this is how you apply what verse 21 is saying. You voluntarily give in to your husband's leadership and you submit to his leadership in your home. And then in verse 25, when he says very clearly that the husbands are supposed to unselfishly sacrifice and serve their wives, that's submitting to also. That's giving in also, it's yielding to them also and serving in that way. Here's the first reason why your marriage matters to God. The goal of the Christian life is that we be filled with God's Spirit and we reach maturity and become more and more like Christ. And so as we surrender to the Spirit, we become more and more mature. Where do you learn how to submit to the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit? In your marriage in your home, in your relationships. There's a sense where your marriage is a gymnasium where you go to work out. You work out and work on being filled with God's Spirit and living under His control and authority. I mean, you could say, hey, I'm filled with the Spirit and you sing with gusto in church and maybe you have some of the sign gifts displayed in your life and all those things are going on. But do you know how to love your spouse? Do you respect them? Do you honor them? Can you care for them like ca- Christ cares for you? And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter how exuberant your spiritual expression really is because you're not filled with the Spirit. God's opinion of your, ma- of your marriage is very high. He cares about it deeply. It matters to Him. Why? Because it's an opportunity for you to grow in being filled with God's Spirit. It's like a gymnasium that helps you grow stronger in your faith, in your commitment, and ultimately in being filled with God's Spirit. It's a way for you to grow more and more in Christlikeness as you let God's Spirit fill you. So understand that God has a heavy investment in your marriage because he sees it as an opportunity for you to grow stronger in your relationship with Christ, okay? And I know some of you are thinking, well, I hope my husband's listening because he really needs to grow stronger in Christ. And some of you are thinking, boy, I wish my wife would get this because she really needs to grow stronger in Christ. And I think the message is just really saying that you and I need to grow stronger in Christ. Don't worry about them. You and I focus on, am I filled with your spirit? And can it be seen in my marriage? Am I yielding? Am I loving? Am I submitting to my spouse in marriage? So that's the first reason why your marriage matters to God, because it's a gymnasium for growing stronger and being filled in the spirit context though is not just what's going on in the beginning of the passage it's also what's at the end of the passage and so when we go through this section here about marriage in chapter five and we start into chapter six we learn about family life particularly parenting children and parents and their relationship and how does the holy spirit impact that and transform that. And then we get into starting in verse 5 of chapter 6, and we work our way down to verse 9, and it's talking about masters and slaves and servants in a, in a household relationship. We apply it in our times to the employer-employee relationship, and so we'll be talking about work in a couple of weeks and how you get along with your jerk of a boss and, and, you know, be able to deal with them. And some of you laughed a little too loud there, especially people on my staff. I'm a little worried about that today. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge for us is to understand that the Spirit of God wants to transform all of these things. And He will do that as we let Him. But notice verse 10 of chapter six. Again, we're just zooming out and getting the bigger picture. Because in verse 10 of chapter six, he says, "Finally." Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And some of you are right away saying, yep, my marriage is a war. I am at battle against her. And yes, I finally figured it out. She's filled with the devil. That's why we're having so much trouble in marriage. Or he's demon possessed. That's why we're having so much trouble in our marriage. And it's easy to see that the fight in marriage is against your spouse, but it's not. It's not. You're not battling your spouse. Your spouse is not your enemy. Even if they're not a believer, even if they're a believer who is not walking with the Lord, they are not your enemy. You and your spouse are fighting side by side against a common enemy, against the evil and darkness of our world, and against the wiles and trickery of the devil, the schemes of the devil. He's the enemy. And together, it's letting God's Spirit fill us and empower us and learning how to put that armor on. And then, yes, your marriage is a battlefield, where together you love one another, serve one another, and together do the work of God to advance the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light against the darkness of our world. And so your marriage matters to God for a second reason. Not only is it a gymnasium where you grow, strong, grow stronger and being filled with the Spirit, but it's also a battlefield where the kingdom of God is advanced as you learn to love your wife and as you learn to yield to your husband and respect him and as you do that you learn to put the armor on and you understand that there is conflict but the battles not against that man or woman you're married to the battle is together you're facing off against the powers of darkness that are very real many of you think that your spouse is the enemy and I urge you to change your thinking because that is not true they may be a prisoner of the enemy they may be deceived by the enemy Maybe you're the one who's deceived by the enemy. So we need to constantly be going back to God, show me the truth and help me to see things accurately. Because in the fog of war, and the conflict the noise and the smoke of the battlefield, the confusion of the battlefield, it's easy to think that your spouse is the enemy when they're not. They are not your enemy. But together, you can wear the armor of God and fight for what's good. So your marriage matters to God also because your marriage is a battlefield where the kingdom of God advances against the forces of darkness. Okay? But there's a third reason why your marriage matters to God, why it's very special to Jesus Christ and it's important to Him. And that's in the, the passage itself that we're going to be looking at. And so I need to be honest with you and just say that we're going to be looking very briefly, you know, very quickly. We're going to kind of walk through the passage, and I'll point out a couple highlights that are pertinent to today and why our marriage matters to God. They're important. But next week, we'll be looking in more detail and talking about the how-tos, the mechanics of actually things I can do that would make my marriage better. What can I do to make my marriage better? So I want you to notice verse 33. Because really... The heart and soul of what Paul is trying to say in this passage is summarized in verse 33. I mean, you noticed when we had the Scripture reading at the beginning of the message that he starts off by talking to the wives and urges them to voluntarily yield or submit to their husband. And then you notice in verse 25, it starts talking about the husbands to lovingly serve their wives and put their wives first and sacrificially give to them just like... Christ gave his life to rescue us. And so you you see that. Well, after all this discussion, we get to verse 33. It says there, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God did design marriage not just to bring him glory although it should do that, not just to advance the cause of righteousness and good and fight against evil, and of course it should, and not just as a place where we work out spiritually and learn to be filled with the Spirit no matter what happens in life. Of course, that's why we have marriage, yes, but it's bigger than that. God does have a plan and design to meet the needs of your life, and He does that through marriage. Now, God also meets the needs of single people, of course, And he cares for them? Of course. But if he leads you and calls you and you have the inkling and desire to be married and you enter into a marriage relationship, then God is going to use that relationship to help meet needs in your life as well. God said in the Garden of Eden, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper. And every time I say that word helper, I kind of feel like, God bless our sisters in Christ, but I just kind of I wouldn't blame you if you just kind of cringe. Helper, that sounds so subservient. Second class, a, a slave or a servant, you know, the assistant and not the one that's actually in charge. That's not what the word means at all. It's the idea of an ally, a compatriot, a fellow soldier, a teammate on the same team, running the plays fighting for a victory. Someone who's your equal, but someone who fights alongside of you toward a common enemy for a common good. That's what that word helper means. So don't think of it as someone who's lower. Think of it as someone who is an ally. So in this passage, when we see these roles in marriage, you and I need to understand that it's not because one is less than the other. It's because we're actually equal in Christ and we voluntarily choose to serve one another. We voluntarily choose to submit and honor one another and we do that. The husband is called to love his wife, to love his wife like Christ loves the church, like he loves himself and he loves his own body because Christ loves his body, the church, okay? And the wife is called to yield to her husband, to respect him and honor him. I found this very remarkable in researching for this message, is that all the marriage therapy research that you'll read about the needs of husbands and wives, if you boil it all down, you know what a wife really needs and is looking for? To be loved and cherished and valued more than anything else. I mean, the thrill of dating, the thrill of engagement. There's this pursuit, this desire, this he wants me. I, I, I am needed. I am desired. He finds me desirable. That's a very thrilling thing. That's part of that desire to be loved and to be able to express that love. But to, to, ha- to have that cherishing kind of love. And the same researchers, after interviewing thousands of couples and doing all kinds of studies, they've come to the conclusion that really the core need of a man is different than the wife because it's not so much love as it is this deep desire for respect, a desire to be valued, a desire to be appreciated. Some men will even tell you, I want to be appreciated and valued and respected more than I want to be loved. And maybe for some women that seems like, what? And, and yet it's so true. I want to be appreciated. I want to be respected. And I just find it remarkable that thousands of years earlier before all the psycho- psychological research that determined that women really want to be loved and men really want to be respected, and of course women need respect and men need love, yes, I know, but the core values, love and respect, Paul said that 2,000 years ago. Huh, how about that? Well, that's because God made us, right? That's how he wired us. And there's this deep, heartfelt need in a woman's life to be loved and in a man's life to be respected. So God, through his Holy Spirit, tells Paul, now you remind those men because they're kind of dumb and forgetful, that they need to go out and love their wives and they need to keep working on it. And not when they feel like it, not when she deserves it, but they need to do it anyway when she doesn't deserve it or doesn't earn it. He needs to love her no matter what. And it's not that they follow the example of themselves or their buddies, but they follow the example of Christ and they love like he does. That's what they're called to do. And remind the ladies that they need to respect their husbands because they don't think and act like women. And they need that affirmation because life is really hard and discouraging. Your life is hard and discouraging too, but so is his. And if you would just love and respect him, then he would probably have an easier time loving you and cherishing you, and vice versa. Emerson Egerich and his wife Sarah, they developed a ministry. You know, he's a a pastor and a marriage counselor and does marriage conferences, and he's written a fascinating book called Love and Respect. And uh, been on focus on the family and other family uh, ministry type of radio programs and conferences. But he describes it this way: when, when he had an "Aha" moment reading Ephesians chapter five verse 33, and seeing the connection between love and respect and knowing the, the psychological research that he's read about as well. He, he, he said he drew a circle, like a, a clock face. And at the 12-o'clock position, he wrote the word "love." And at the, at the 6 o'clock position, he wrote respect. And it was like when, when the wife doesn't get the love down at the 3 o'clock position, it's, it, she struggles to show respect. It's so hard for her to show respect, and she reacts. And when the husband doesn't show a, a true love for his wife, when he doesn't love her, then, then he reacts negatively as well, and he, and he calls it the crazy cycle. She doesn't respect him, he doesn't love her. She doesn't respect him, he doesn't love her. And around and around and around it goes. And everybody's getting sick. Spiritual vertigo. Matrimonial confusion. Because there's a refusal to show respect and a refusal to show love in the marriage relationship. Egerich wrote a book called Love and Respect, as I mentioned to you, And basically, the entire book is about how to break that crazy cycle and learning to show genuine love to your husband, excuse me, yeah, genuine respect, pardon me, genuine respect to your husband and how to show concrete examples of love for your wife so that they see it and so that they feel it. Not just, I told you I love you, I'm sorry you can't feel it, but I told you. It's more than that. To, to, to be able to communicate love in a way that she understands and show respect in a way that he understands. Your marriage matters to God because God wants to give you the gift of fulfillment through your spouse. That's a third reason why your marriage matters. And it's a way for you in a safe secure relationship for you to be honored and respected as a man and to be loved and cherished as a wife because there are people that will prey on you when that love and respect is not showing up in your home and they will try to deceive you and pull you away from each other and that will be damaging to you and your children and by the way can I just say this people say that you should stay married for the children and I understand a lot of times people don't but you really should because it really is devastating on them. And that's why you really do need to stay. God wants to fulfill your life as He loves you through your spouse, as He respects you through your spouse. God wants to do that. It's not good for the man to be alone. I've created someone to be his ally to pick up the slack and make the difference in his life and complete him and complete her in that way. Your marriage is a way for God to offer you fulfillment in your life as an individual as you learn to love and respect your spouse. But there's one more reason why your marriage really matters. And I think this is actually the most important of all. I think it's really difficult for men to consistently, unselfishly, love their wives. I'm not making an excuse. I'm just speaking from experience, and if you really want to check this out, talk to my wife Dawn, but uh, she'll tell you there are times where I've really dropped the ball and failed in loving my spouse as I should, loving my wife as I should. Now, she's very forgiving, and she's very gracious, and she's helped me, and I'm learning how to do it better. Next week, actually this week, we celebrate 36 36 years, so I'm really excited about that. God bless Dawn Morgan, what can I say? She's really hung in there. But we often fail at doing what we know God wants us to do. And, and you know ladies, there have been times where you haven't really affirmed and encouraged and shown gratitude to your husband like you know you should and like you know he needs. You, you know that. And maybe your husband really is a jerk. Maybe he really does drop the ball or maybe he really is Prince Charming, I don't know. But either way, we've all fallen short of doing what God calls us to do in meeting the needs of our spouse by husbands loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands. That's why this last reason why your marriage matters to God is so important. Your marriage matters to God because your marriage points to Christ. Your marriage points to Jesus. And you might be thinking, if you heard that argument we had last night, I don't know where Jesus was. I don't think he was here. And if you saw what we squabbled about, if you looked at how you know, things are going, you'd say Jesus must be a thousand miles away from our marriage. But that's not true. Because everything that the Apostle Paul says in this passage that a husband is to do, he's to do it because of Christ. And everything the wife is to do, It's because of Christ. Christ is at the center of the whole picture of marriage. In fact, the marriage relationship reveals Christ's relationship to the church. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 22, it says very clearly that wives are to submit to their own husbands, why? As to the Lord. Just like you submit to to Jesus, You say Christ is Lord of your life, as you submit to his authority, then submit to your husband. Voluntarily yield to him, whether he's a believer or not, whether he's spiritually with it or not, whether he's as mature and as spiritually intelligent as you are or not, you still yield to him. You do that willingly. You do it as to the Lord. It's how you show your worship of the Lord. And why does he say this? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. A lot of debate as to what does this word head mean? Does it mean the source of life or does it mean authority? And really, I think the better way to understand the word head there is leadership. He's to provide loving leadership in the home. Not that He's smarter than you. He's not. Obviously, he's not. Okay? And it's not that he's better or more holy than you, and that's obviously probably isn't that either. It's not that he just happens to have the right set of chromosomes and you don't. That's not the issue either. The issue is, is that God has just chosen to do it this way and there's one head of the church and that's Jesus Christ. And clearly, yes, we get our life from him, but clearly he's our leader. And I think we're all in agreement with that. Jesus is Lord, he's the boss, right? Not me. You know, we're, we're not saying, Jesus, you should do this and you should do that and you should do this. No, Jesus says, this is my will for your life and we say, yes, Lord, we'll submit to you. We'll do your will. So the church submits and voluntarily yields to Christ's authority. Same way, wives are to yield to the authority of their husbands because Christ has made them head over the family as well. And this head, as the head of the body, the church, he's also its savior, he's the one that protects and provides and rescues the church as well. And so now, as the church submits to Christ, verse 24 says, so wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. So you yield to your husband in all things. Obviously, if he asks you to sin, you don't do what he says, you don't do that. We ought to obey God rather than men in that kind of a case. If he's actually abusing you or hurting you in some way or hurting the children, you can't yield then either because he's clearly doing something wrong. But a lot of times we just disagree about where to go for vacation or we disagree on how to spend the money or we disagree about where the kids are going to get educated and we disagree about these things and it's easy to turn them into gigantic blow-ups. And here he's just simply saying, yield to your husband, do it voluntarily in love, not because he's better than you, he's not, you're equals in Christ, but just yield to him because that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit and because there's this big battle going on and you're allies, not enemies. And because actually his love for you is a way for you to be fulfilled by him and you respecting him is a way to meet his needs and fill up his emotional tank as well. So do it for those reasons. But ultimately it goes back to marriage points to Christ. We do this because of the imagery of the marriage relationship. Jesus Christ is the husband and the church is the bride, his wife. And we're to yield to him as our authority. But then notice in verse 25, husbands are supposed to love their wives. Why? How? As Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ voluntarily surrendered himself and went to the cross, not because he had to, but because he chose to. What was the motivation? He loved the church. He loved you. He loved you. And he gave himself for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be reconciled to God, so that all the things that he describes here could take place in your life through his work, that he might sanctify her, literally set her apart from sin to be wholly devoted to him. And then having cleansed her by the washing of the water through the word, using the word of God to cleanse and purify her life. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, glorious splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And the picture here is is a wedding day and there's Jesus standing at the front of the church and his bride is coming down as a church, and I know this is starting to get complicated, but here here he is up at the altar, and here's the church coming as a bride, and she's young, and she's beautiful, and there's no blemishes, and there's no wrinkles, and she's lovely and vital in every way, and she's coming down to be with her husband, to say I do and to be joined with him for all eternity. And that's the picture of what Jesus did when he saved us. He brought us into a relationship with him. And we talk about, you know, you join the army of God, and you join the family of God, but you get married to Jesus. And that's what happens at salvation also. And I understand that for some of us guys, maybe that sounds a little strange, but it's the truth that we are together collectively the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And he brings us into relationship with him. And he's working and purifying us so that we're like a bride on our wedding day. You know what? I've officiated a bunch of weddings. I have never, ever, 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 ever seen an ugly bride. Never. I've seen some emotional ones. I've seen some confused ones. But I have never, ever seen an ugly bride. They're glorious. And I remember on our wedding day, May 1st, 1982, when dawn came down the aisle at the church where we were getting married, and I remember being so scared going into the auditorium. I mean, I'm standing behind the pastor and the best man's behind me. I thought, there's no way I can escape. And I remember, thinking, I remember thinking that, I mean, this is it. Open the door and go in. I remember getting scared then. I remember getting scared before saying I do. And I remember getting scared when we were cutting the wedding cake because I thought for sure we were going to cut it and it was going to fall down and all that. But just that idea of making that commitment. But you know what got me through all that is, wow, look how beautiful she is. Look how beautiful she is as she comes down the aisle. Wow, that's my wife to be. How glorious! How beautiful! How elegant! How splendid! She was, and she'll tell you she didn't feel that way. And you know she'll tell you modesty like that. But she was, she was hot. I really was. It was. It was beautiful. I just, I just will say that. Okay. Don't mean to embarrass her, but just. I think most guys on their wedding day would say the same thing about their brides. And the thing is is that we have that attraction, that allurement, really both the husband and the wife project to each other when they first get married. And Gary Chapman in his book, The Five Love Languages, he says that, that attraction, that allurement, that fascination and infatuation with each other, that's there for about a year or so and then it wears off. And then you start realizing that they burp, and they forget to put the seat down, and they pass gas, and they do all this other kind of stuff, and they don't agree with you. And you thought they were the smartest, wisest person you had ever met. And now they don't agree with you, and they disagree with you, and you struggle through that, and you butt heads, and you do all this kind of stuff, and you forget each other. Keep your hands to yourself, lady. Okay? All right. All right. And uh, all, all this is going on and it's like the romance, and the beauty of marriage just dissolves. It just dissolves. And that's why we've got to see that something bigger is going on. That we are in this marriage for something bigger than just the physical attraction or just the expectations of society or just the fact that this is my best friend. Your best friend can become the biggest idiot once you get going in marriage unless you understand that together your marriage is pointing to Christ. And so as we keep going here, in the same way in verse 28 it says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. He's emphasizing here that we should love our wives and love our husbands, but here the husband's to love his wife because he's loving his own body. And you're saying, but how does that relate to Jesus? Well, we become his body when we are saved and we join the church through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why he then quotes verse 31, therefore, quotation from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, after God creates uh, Eve and brings her to Adam, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. And this passage is basically emphasizing that the, that the principle of marriage is that it involves a two-step process. On the one hand, you leave mom and dad. You cut the umbilical cord of a dependence on them, financial dependence in particularly. You cut the cord of allegiance, and yes, you honor them and you love them, but you cut that cord because now you're depending on your spouse and your ultimate loyalty is to your spouse. So you leave father and mother and you hold fast or you cling to your wife. The King James Version called that you leave mother and father and you cleave to your... And I always thought it sounded like a you know, butcher's knife or something like that, chopping something, cleaver, you know, a, a, you know, a meat cleaver like that. And that's not what he's, what he's talking about. He's talking about sticking to something like glue, holding fast to it like glue. And that's why in the marriage ceremony, the, the wedding ceremony, there's those vows because that's when you start putting on the glue. for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, to love you and cherish you until death does part. I do. When we say that, we're starting to put on the glue. And you begin sticking to your spouse no matter what. And you live that and you honor that the days of your lives. And so you leave mom and dad, you cling to your wife, and it says the two of them Cling to your spouse, the two of them become one flesh. And obviously, you know, it doesn't take much to figure it out that one flesh certainly refers to the sexual union in marriage, but it's bigger than that. It's, that's just kind of on the surface. It's, yes, the physical union, but there's an emotional connection and intimacy, and there's a spiritual connection and intimacy and a mental, emotion, a mental connection and intimacy as well. And we're uniting on all those levels and we become one. And that's why he then says in verse 32, this is a, this is a profound mystery. It's not the mystery of, of marriage, although a lot of us men are kind of scratching our heads and saying, has anybody figured out women? A lot of women are saying, I don't understand my husband. And we think it's a mystery that way. But that's not the mystery he's talking about. The mystery is, is that marriage reveals what Christ and his union to the church is like. The marriage relationship shows that. It reveals that. The mystery, the hidden secret is now revealed. And so there's this picture here as you look at marriage and you understand that here's Christ and here's his bride and they come together and they're one flesh. They're one body in the eyes of God. Two individuals I get, I understand that, but they're joined together as one. And so he's saying, Why in the world would you not love your wife? Because you're one with her, you should love her. You need to love her, like Christ loves her. And why wouldn't you love your wife? You must love your wife because Christ gave himself for her, just like you're called to give yourself for her to make her your bride. She's your bride, she's your body. Love her, cherish her, make her your very own and treat her with that unconditional kind of love. You see, a lot of us go through life And we have this huge expectation that the person I marry is going to make me secure. That they're going to make my life complete. That they're going to be the most charming, intimate, intimate and interesting individual. that, That when I talk to them, I'm going to just feel so much better. They're going to be able to comfort me. They're going to understand me. They're going to satisfy my appetites and drives and and they're just going to be there for me. And my life will be fulfilled and complete and secure if I have this spouse in my life. That's what we're thinking when we get married. And a lot of us when we're bailing out of a marriage, we're thinking you're not doing that stuff. You don't measure up. I'm going to find somebody else who will. And that's where the temptation lies. This passage is reminding us that your spouse will hopelessly fall short in trying to meet all those expectations in your life. They won't love you unconditionally, even though they're called to do that. And hopefully as they grow in Christ and are filled with the Spirit, they'll do it better and better. But there'll still be times that they drop the ball. And yes, you work hard and you deserve to be respected and honored. There's no question about that. But there'll be times that she forgets to do that because her life's hard too, and she's been busy with the kids, and her job's very demanding. And it's a struggle for her when you don't love her the way you should. And, and she'll drop the ball also, and that'll hurt you. That'll disappoint you. And it's in those moments that we need to see the bigger picture and understand that the needs that I have, my, my spouse can't meet them. But Jesus can Because He's the one who died for me. He's the one who lives for me. He's the one who made me a member of His body and made me part of His bride. And He brought me into this relationship with Him that this marriage is supposed to be a picture of. That He would want me. That he came to give himself for me this way. So why am I putting these burdens upon my wife or my husband to do those kind of things that they can't do? Why don't I just instead focus on how do I love her? How do I respect him? And I do that in the power of the Spirit because we're in the middle of this big battle against evil. Because yes, if I do that, his needs will be met and her needs will be met but I'm doing it because my needs are met by Jesus. He's the one who fills up what's lacking. He pours Himself into my cup. He's the one that satisfies me and comforts me and helps me because He's the Savior who gave Himself to me. And He's even now working in my life to make me more like Himself as His body and as His bride. Your marriage matters to Jesus. If your marriage matters to you, there's a couple things you can do. I know some of you have been waiting for the how-to part of this message. That's next week, okay? But I do want to give you something you can do. And some of you are going to kind of heave a sigh when you hear it because you're going to say, oh, I was hoping he would say something really practical. But I think this is immensely practical and I think it's immensely powerful there are two things that I want to encourage you to do. One is to cultivate an attitude of thankfulness for God's work in your life and for your spouse. To just understand that that partner you're married to, that man, that woman that you're married to, is actually God's gift to you. Thank him for it. What are the things that you can see that you can give thanks for because of them being part of you? How can you thank God for what he's doing in your marriage, even if it's difficult, even if it's painful right now? How can you give thanks in this moment for what God is doing? And then thank him. That'll lead to a humility. That'll lessen the likelihood of anger wrecking your relationship. But secondly, I encourage you to pray for your marriage. And the temptation is, to pray that your husband gets it or that your wife finally understands and gets their act together. Don't pray for that. Let God deal with that in his time and his his way. But pray for yourself. God, forgive me please for falling short and really loving my wife or really respecting my husband. Forgive me for that, please. And I'm asking you to help me now honor my husband in a way that he understands and appreciates and i'm asking you to to help me just respect him even when there are things he does that i have trouble respecting help me respect him because he is the leader in our home help me do that and lord i admit i have fallen when it comes to loving my wife and i haven't sacrificed for her and put her first but I'm asking right now that you would help me love my wife unselfishly like Christ loves the church. And I'm praying that you would love my wife through me because I'm not good enough at it. I'm praying that you would just take your love and just pour it out through my life to her and bless her. And I'm praying that you would take your love and respect and you just would pour it out through my life to my husband, that you would do that, Lord, I surrender to you. I challenge you, I challenge you to pray that kind of prayer every day this week. Start today. Do it before you go to bed. Do it sometime today. Take a walk and pray it. Don't tell your wife, I'm praying that I would love you better. That kind of will wreck everything. Don't tell your husband, I'm just letting you know that I'm trying to respect you better and I'm praying for that. Don't don't announce it. That kind of defeats the purpose. Just like Jesus said, go to your closet, whatever that is, your private place, and pray in quietness, and it's between you and God. And just keep praying this week and see what happens. And maybe the needle will move in the right direction just a little bit this week. Maybe it won't, but you'll be right. You'll be doing what's right. I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to stand. And I think we're just going to go ahead and dismiss you now with prayer. We're a little over time. So let's stand. Let me give you a blessing before we go. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being in your presence today. And I thank you for your great love and care. And I'm asking that, Father in heaven, that you would just help us honor and please you in our marriages. Lord, I ask you to comfort those who are grieving today. They... Are hurting in their marriage maybe the loss of a loved one I pray that you would help them and give them your grace today for those that are married and maybe their marriage is struggling I ask you to help them and be with them and and may they have the courage to pray like this like we've just talked about I pray that you'd hear their prayers and help them to be a better lover and respecter for your honor and for your glory and I ask that father in heaven you also would just stir in our midst that we would truly have stronger, healthier, happier marriages for your honor and for your glory because that's how you are with the church. And I thank you that, Lord, you love us this way and uh, you are true to us this way. How I ask that, Lord, we would love our spouses that way for your honor and for your glory. I ask this in the name of Jesus and I say amen. God bless you. Have a great week.